I'm convinced that most of the most important things we learn about life, uh, we learn when we're kids. Um, and like Tripp said when he was up here, uh, fathers have an amazing responsibility from God to steward this influence that they have to impact um, kids. And I don't know about your dad, but my dad had lots of sayings that he would say, and I thought that they were all his until I grew up and I heard uh, people say this all, all the time. Dad, it's not just you, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, slow and steady wins the race. Like, I thought that that was my dad's. And then I found out, Dad, you got this from a fable. Um, don't count your chickens before the hatch. All of these things. Uh, but there's this one story, I think, out of all of these stories that stand out more than and, and anyone else. And it's the story of the boy who cried wolf. Y'all know that story, right? There's this boy who's bored and he longs for attention. He's in charge of trying to watch all the town sheep. And so what he does is he cries out and acts like there's a wolf there. And folks come to his aid and he laughs and says, there's no wolf. Well, he does this a few more times and folks come out and they're like, hey, don't play because one day there is going to be a wolf and you're going to cry for help and we're not going to help you. And there's two versions of this story. One is that, you know, the wolf comes and he cries out for help and the wolf comes and kills all the sheep. The other version that's very surprising is that the wolf comes and kills all of the sheep and the boy. And the moral of the story at the end, right, or what they say, regardless of what version, what takes place is that nobody feels bad for the boy. And everybody says, I told you so. So the moral of the story is don't lie because things are going to go terribly bad for you. You're going to die a horrific death and nobody's going to feel bad for you. It's kind of harsh, right? One of the things that I found out, though, was that, man, that's a great story. It's a good lesson and it's true And it helps to prevent trouble. You really could scare kids into saying, this will be your fate if you lie. But what takes place when you're not trying to prevent trouble, but you find yourself in present trouble? Do you know what doesn't help? A story like this telling you what you should have done. You know it's right. You know it's true. You know there were going to be consequences to your action, but that doesn't help when you feel like you've hit rock bottom. And I told you so doesn't make you feel any better. It doesn't progress you down the line. So what does take place? What's the right way to respond when we find ourselves in present trouble at rock bottom in a place where we can't get out of? All of us at one time in our lives are going to find us there. And we come to this text, Jonah chapter 2, and we look primarily at how God responds to somebody who knew the implications and the consequences behind his action, and yet he found himself at rock bottom. And so if you would turn with me to Jonah chapter 2, and we're just going to look and see three things what Jonah's position was, where he was. His faint plea, the cry that he makes to God, and we're going to look 
um, at how God shows favor to somebody that is getting the consequences of their action. The thing that I love about Jonah, 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 Jonah 2 is, right, this is a prayer of thanksgiving. The story of Jonah is so often mistold. It's like he runs from God. God will catch up to him. He gets swallowed up in this fish, and he prays and asks that God would just give him one more chance. That's not how the story, know what I've got to do, throw me to my death. He thinks that he's going to die, and then God saves him. And Jonah, too, is this psalm. It's this prayer of thanksgiving. You know, it's been said that the Bible speaks for us, or the Bible speaks to us, But the Psalms speak for us, and we know that to be true, right? There's something about songs and music that help to capture our emotions and what we feel. You know, I first learned this when I was um, 13 years old. 90s R&B helped me to see this, that songs capture what you feel, right? They give you permission to grieve. I didn't know that it was okay for a grown man to spin around in circles and cry over a love that he lost until Brian McKnight gave me the permission to do so. One last cry. Before I leave it all behind, I've got to put you out of my mind for the very last time. I've been living a lie. Listen, but what takes place? Right? The beautiful thing about Jonah 2 and the psalm, especially on a day like Father's Day, right? We live in a world where it seems like men are so out of touch with what they feel on the inside. You go through the psalms, and do you know all of the psalms that are attributed to anybody that we see here in the text are men. Moses, David, Asaph, you see these guys leading out in emotions in a healthy way to express that. And so just a brief note, fathers, you have a task and a charge from God. Teach your kids how to rightly deal with how they feel on the inside. Right? Brian did a great job and he helped me, but I, I would have much rather learned from the Bible. And fathers, you have an amazing chance to do this with your kids. And so here's what Jonah does. Jonah chapter 2, starting in verse 1 and 2, it says this. Then, well then what? After he's in the belly of this whale, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. This is not going to be a cliffhanger. Jonah's not trying to keep you in suspense as to what God did. Jonah is so thankful that God saved him when he hit rock bottom that throughout the rest of this time, like, he's not going to give you, all right, this is my problem, this is what I did, and this is how God helped. Mixed into all of his problems and what God did. He's so eager to talk about how grateful that he is to God that he throws these hints all across the place. You read Jonah chapter one, and as you read that chapter in your Bible, there's one word that you could write down next to it to describe it, and that is the word down. 
God calls Jonah to do something with his life, and Jonah runs from God, and that run is a run downhill. Look at your Bibles in 1 verse 3. But Jonah ran from the presence of God. He went down to Joppa. He finds the ship. He goes down into the ship. Verse 5, towards the end. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. Verse 15, they throw him down into the sea. Verse 17, he gets swallowed into the belly of the whale. And in 2 verse 2, he says, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. A run away from God is a run downhill. That's the only place that sin leads. Down to destruction, to Jonah saying, I'm at rock bottom. But like I said, the thanks is constantly mixed in. Get two verse one, it says this, then Jonah prayed not just to the Lord God, but to the Lord his God. Isn't that such good news that even when we turn our back on God, God is not so quick to turn his back on us. That Jonah can pray and say, God, there's still a connection that I have to you. And it's not because I was so faithful. It was because you were so gracious. Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. And so here's the thesis. Here's the big thing. Chapter 2 is all about this. God gives his favor to failures, even as they offer faint cries for help. God gives his favor to failures. To people that have messed up, the people that have hit rock bottom. Even if their cries for help are faint and unimpressive. Jonah's position, read here with me in verse 3, and we'll see that his position is our frightening position. And that's the state that we all find ourselves in, is it's not just at rock bottom, but below rock bottom. Look here at verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed up upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O oh Lord, my God. Here's three, uh, a few things that we're going to see. Our frightening position below rock bottom. In those verses, Jonah talks about how he got there, whose fault it was, and just how bad it is. Verse 3, how he got there. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. When Jonah thinks of sin, he doesn't think primarily of the people that he's wrong. He thinks of God. So it was actually the sailors that threw him into the deep. It was actually the water that came around him. But Jonah's point is that when I faced the destruction for my sin, it was God that caused it and his creation co-signed on it. 
Sin, first and foremost, is always about an offense that's been done to a holy God. Jonah knows this like everybody else in the Bible that really grasps what sin is. Psalms 51, as David is confessing his sin to God about sleeping with a man's wife and then murdering him so that nobody would find out that the child wasn't his. Listen to what he says. Psalms 51.4. God, it is against you only that I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Genesis 39.9. When Joseph is being tempted to sleep with his boss's wife, what he says to her is this. How could I do this great thing and sin against God? The people that really know their God know that sin, that all the wrong that's done is first and foremost a wrong that has been done to God himself. So Jonah says, how did I get here? God put me here because at the end of the day, I did my wrongs against him. Get verse four. Whose fault is it? Verse four. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again at your holy temple. In chapter one, Jonah's goal and his aim when God told him to do something was to run from God's presence. And now Jonah is lamenting the fact that he's been driven from God's presence. Jonah's saying this, God, I basically got what I asked for. I got what I wanted and it turned out it's the thing that I feared the most. There's nobody to blame but him. I want you to know that sometimes when God doesn't give you what you want, it is an act of grace. And sometimes when God gives you what you want, it's an act of judgment and punishment. Jonah's saying, I got what I wanted and what I worked for, and it turned out to be the thing that I feared the most. Running from God is running towards death, and Jonah feels that he's got there. Right? But at the end of verse 4, there's that hope. But God, I, I know that this isn't the end of my story. Look at how, how bad it is. Verse 5 and 6, right? Sometimes when we come to the text and read, things seem so confusing when we read it so quickly. But when you slow down and read, you see that it's very plain. Look at what he he says here in verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. So he's talking about what take place when they threw him over, over, over the boat. Now, for somebody like me, who's an almost swimmer, verse 5 is horrific, right? The waters closed in to take my life. But look, even if you could swim, read on. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. I'm suffocating. I'm choking. I'm being driven down. Look at the roots of the mountains. What mountains? He's below sea level. Jonah is talking about the ocean floor. Look, I went down to the land. That's a bad sign. If when you're thrown overboard, you keep going down until you hit the bottom. And it's not just that I went down to the land in this sea, but he goes on and says this, whose bars closed upon me forever. 
Jonah saying his frightening condition is not that he hit rock bottom. It's that he was below sea level. He was so low that he knew there's nothing that I can do to get myself out of this. Even if I could swim, I'm being choked by weeds. Even if I could get free of the weeds, I'm already so far down. Even if I could step on the ground and push my way up, the ground is forming this cave. This, my friends, is rock bottom. Here's how you know that you've really hit rock bottom. Here's how you know that you really grasp what sin is and what sin does. It's it's if you feel both helpless and hopeless. If you feel like you can still blame somebody else for how far you are from God, or you feel like if I just had one more chance, I would do better than you haven't hit rock bottom and you have no understanding of what sin is and what sin does. When you really start to grasp what sin is and what it does, you find out as far as my relationship with God and the distance that I feel, there's nobody that I can blame for where I'm at right now. And moreover, even if I had one more chance, I'd probably find myself in the same place. And this is where Jonah is. He feels helpless and hopeless. You know, through the course of our time in the church, we've talked through so many people, including pastors that have just found themselves in this season where depression is strong. And for those of y'all that have gone through it, y'all know how it feels to be both helpless and hopeless and to feel like there's nothing that I can do to get myself out. And for those of y'all that don't quite know how that feels, I just want to explain to you, especially for those that are married, if you think that your lack of joy in your marriage is primarily because of somebody else's actions, or if I just had a chance to choose again, then I could make the right choice, then I would really be joyful then I don't know if you're aware of the frightening position that we find ourselves in with sin being on on the inside. You know, as we've gone through 1 Peter, one thing that we've learned here is that suffering and joy are not things that are mutually exclusive. For the Christian, suffering is the pathway to joy, which means that there is no scenario or circumstance That can cause us to feel like I've lost my joy because of that. If we really know who God is. It's not circumstantial. Our problem is within. And Jonah feels this. As we all do. Oh, if we were a church that really grasped this. There would be such amazing potential. For people that are downcast and find themselves here. We don't look down on them because you realize how it doesn't make sense. Like from the bottom of the ocean floor, you can't look down on anybody. But you can look eye to eye to anybody that finds themselves there. And so 
Christianity is about good news. This psalm is a psalm of thanks and of good news, but it starts with very, very bad news. Our frightening position is that we are below rock bottom. We don't just need one more chance. And we can't blame somebody else for where we are. So what can be done with people that find themselves here? This text is not just about our frightening position. It's about our faint prayer. The beauty of what we see here is that Jonah has this faint prayer. Look at the first part of verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. The first time that Jonah prays in this whole book is not when they think that they're going to die on the boat. The first time that he prays in the whole book, the first time that we see him pray is right here as he's recounting on the fact that God saved his life. So as he recounts the prayer that he prayed, what he says is this, when my life was fainting away, when I was on my last breath, that was when I cried out to God. I don't know if you've been in a place where you've almost drowned. I've almost drowned twice in my life. And both times as water gets in there, contrary to popular belief, you're not very eloquent. You can't really string your words together at all. It's just this faint and this helpless help. As Jonah talks about this prayer that he prayed to God, he says, as my life was fainting away, I remembered my God. And we don't like that. What we do is we critique somebody that does that. We say, well, you really didn't mean it. The only reason that you said it or you cried out for help was because you got caught. And that's an example about why they should be disqualified for mercy. And what I'm saying is, of course, that's the only reason why I said it, because that's how far gone I am. That's an example of desperation. The fact that the only time that I would cry out to God is when I felt like my life was over. That just shows how much I need God's grace. What that doesn't give us or you the permission to do is to critique and to judge somebody's motive. We should be celebrating the fact that God has brought them to a place or brought us to a place where we would actually cry out to him. Don't judge people's prayers or your own prayers like you would a loan application. Right? February 2011, it was, uh, what, five and a half years ago right now, my wife and I embarked to buy our first house on the east side of town. And so as we're buying this house, what took place uh, is uh, they do a credit check. And at the time... Right. The bad choices that I made in college, college students, the free credit card that they give you is not worth the T-shirt. Don't sign up for it. So as that caught up with me, what took place was that as we went to go and get this loan, they said, you're not credit worthy. But they said, here's what you can do. You can do a lease purchase. And what that means is, is that you lease the home, pay your rent for a year. 
pay all those bills, catch up, find all the folks that you did wrong, settle with them and pay all of those bills. And then if you do that for 12 months straight and you prove that you're somebody that's trustworthy, we'll give you this loan. With my wife's help, we did it and we closed on the loan. We worked really, really hard and we got the forgiveness that we needed from the bank. That is not what takes place here and that's not the gospel. What takes place here is somebody that's so far gone that all he says is, I'm drowning, I'm dying, I don't have time to fix all of those things. All I can say is help. I'm not worthy. I can't prove that I'm credit worthy. For anybody that finds themselves here today and feels like that, I want you to know that wherever you are or wherever you may find yourself, it's never too late to pray and to cry out to God. As long as there's breath, as long as you're aware of your position and where you are, it's never too late. And to offer just this this desperate cry, Charles Spurgeon says this, cast your troubles where you have cast your sins. You have cast your sins into the depths of the sea, there cast your troubles also. Never keep a trouble half an hour on your own mind before you tell it to your heavenly father. As soon as the trouble comes, quit. The first thing, tell it to him. Remember that the longer you delay telling your trouble to God, the more your peace will be impaired. The longer the frost lasts, the more likely that the ponds will be frozen. Don't spend your time trying to get things right. Because if you do, then all that that proves is that you really don't know what it's like to be at rock bottom. Cry out to God quickly. You haven't missed your chance. The beautiful thing is in the Bible, when you look at these prayers of repentance, the one prayer of repentance that Jesus commends in the gospel of Luke comes in Luke 18, 13. Do you know the words that the guy uses? God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, yep, that's it. That's what you do. One of the things that we get a chance to do here at this church is folks want to come in and join is the pastors sit down and talk to them to hear their story, how it was that they came to know the Lord. And as we've heard, I mean, to date, a hundred and twenty five stories of salvation. As most people talk about the turning point. Almost nobody has said, well, and then I sat down and I composed this eloquent prayer to God, highlighting all the wrong things that I've done and pleading for his grace and mercy. Most people have said life got so hard and I bared down and I could remember being in the floor in my room crying and saying, God, help. God, if you don't save me, if you don't do what you need to do, I'm done for. And then they got up and they were wowed and surprised by the way that God had responded to them. They realized that they have no collateral to offer. If you only have the strength 
to say, Lord, help, then say it with all of the strength that you have. And here's the beauty of what takes place. If we realize our frightening position and we give God this faint prayer, you may ask, what could a prayer so faint and unimpressive do? Look here at the verse 7. It says this, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. It does what it says in Psalms 40. These weak prayers crying out to God gives those of us that have a frightening position. And this faint prayer, it gives us a brand new praise. And here's what we praise God for. We praise God that weak prayers meet a willing Savior. That's God's favor. Jonah said, I prayed this faint prayer, and it's not that my prayer was so great or it was built on my integrity and... (laughs) And character that it soared to where God was. No, the reason why we're told that Jonah is so low and his prayer was so faint was that if anybody was going to hear it, they had to be right next to him. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Our prayers don't soar. We have a God that submerges and comes right to where we are. This is the good news that it doesn't have to be these strong prayers that even right now where you are, you can say, Lord, help. I don't know what to do. If you have to do it, I'm going to need you to do it. I don't have the strength. None of us do. You're in a room full of people that have acknowledged that we don't have the strength that we need. Repentance and forgiveness It's not about the depths of your sorrow, because at the end of the day, we find ourselves doing the same thing. But it is about the depths of God's compassion, how willing he is to go deep over and over and over. Jonah prays this faint prayer, and it said his prayer reached God's ears. It's not about the strength of his lungs. But how good God can hear and how willing he is to respond. And so here's where this, what God does, the way that he responds to prayers, contrasts what we may have learned and what has shaped our life as far as the boy who cried wolf. Right? That in the boy who cried wolf, which we all said, yeah, that's a good lesson to prevent folks from harm. What takes place is this boy cries for help. And he cries loudly so that people can hear him. And everybody hears him. But everybody ignores him because he's not trustworthy. But in the gospel, what takes place is this. We cry for help. It's a faint cry, but God hears us. And God knows that we're untrustworthy, but he comes and helps us because of his compassion. And the boy who cried, well, people ignore his cry for help because they think that it's just another ploy. They really can't see the danger that he's in, but we have a God that sees all. We have a God that's stronger than any foe that's not fearful. 
the boy who cried wolf gives us good instruction. This is what you need to do to prevent harm, but it gives no consolation for people that find themselves in present trouble, for people that find themselves constantly going back to the same sins, even though they know the consequences of it. Do you know what the gospel tells us? Do you know why the gospel is good news? While the boy who cries wolf and all religions and good things, while they tell us do better, What the gospel tells us is this. Listen, there's a better village. There's a village where even if you've proven that you're untrustworthy, even if folks know you as the liar and the person that just wants attention, that when you do hit rock bottom and you really are in danger, the help that you're given isn't merit-based. It's not based on how good that you've performed. The gospel doesn't just give good instructions. It gives good news. There is a better village for everybody that constantly finds themselves drawn to the same things over and over and hits rock bottom. There is a God that delivers because of his compassion, not because of your character. Do you feel that that weight lifted? That's what the gospel does. The fact that Jesus died for us, that announcement, it's good news. And it completely changes the order of things. Look here in verse 8. Verse 8 says this. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Right? Jonah is a guy that's seen how people worked and worked and worked and worked and worked. They prayed out to all of their gods, right? Not just to keep them from harm, but to save them when they were in harm and their gods could do nothing. And you ask yourself, well, why were they convinced that their gods were anything? Because here's what idols do. Idols are like that one person in class when you had group projects It didn't really do anything, but when things went well, he got that A. He masquerades as if he works. Our idols tend to masquerade in times of peace and tranquility as if they actually do something. So we hope in them and we work for them. Idols are this. They're things that you work for and you think, my life is incomplete until I have that. If only I had that relationship with that person, then I would really be happy. If only I had the approval from that person, then I'd be happy. If only they would give me the respect that I deserve, then I would really have joy. There are all of these things that we work for and we think our happiness is contingent on all of those things. In Jonah's case, if only I had my independence and could dictate the way that I lived my life, then I would really be happy. And Jonah says, anybody that's convinced of this ensures that they'll never have joy. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Anybody who tries to work for their joy will find out that they're never going to get it. And the work is just going to be increasingly more frustrating. C.S. Lewis says this, God can't give happiness or peace 
apart from himself because it isn't there. Look at the order of what Jonah says now in verse 9. He still talks about work and sacrifice, but those first words are so important. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. People that work for their joy will never find joy. In Jonah's case, he's not saying, well, that means that I don't have to work. No, what he is saying is, I will work, but it's out of a spirit of thanksgiving. It's in response to what God has done. I'm thanking God for what he's done. And as a result of what he's done, as a result of the fact that I found a better village, then I'm going to work. Then I'm going to change. And that's how all true change in this life comes. It doesn't come by you trying to do better. Because at the end of the day, I don't know if you've realized it. But in your own power, you can't do better. That's why even though you've known the consequences of things that you shouldn't have done, for some reason you still did it. And when the guilt was there, you said, I don't believe that I could have done it. But then as soon as the guilt leaves, you find yourself running towards the same thing and saying on the inside, I don't know how I could live without it. But what the gospel does for all of us who cry wolf, is that God freezes. God freezes. We, we're given a better village, a better town with good news, and we're reminded that salvation is not something that we earn. It's not a right that we have, but salvation belongs to God. We can't earn it from him. If we're going to get it, it's going to have to be a gift. And if we know that it's a gift, then we know that our faint prayers can go a long way. The beauty of the gospel, the beauty of what God has done, is that weak prayers meet a willing Savior. Verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up on dry land. God brings him from the depths of the sea and sets him back on dry ground. And I want you to know the story doesn't end here. Jonah still doesn't get it. He's still untrustworthy. His character still has to change, but it doesn't neglect or it doesn't negate the fact that God has still shown compassion to him. It just helps us see the compassion of God is not based on our character. It's given to us because of our character. That's the good news. And so I want you to know that if you're here and you don't know Jesus, it doesn't take an eloquent prayer. It doesn't take much. And that should be good news for all of us who feel like we don't have much to give. It takes all you have with all the strength that you have crying out to God and saying, Lord, I know that I've sinned against you. Help. And when we pray as we meet a willing Savior, we have a reason to praise and to thank God. And so in light of the praise that we have, here's how we live the rest of our lives. We live the rest of our lives. We live the rest of our day to day as we're getting ready to go out. It's this one thing that I just want you to think of 
and do. It's what Jonah does here in chapter 2. It's what he does in this book. Most folks believe Jonah wrote this book. All he does is he shares his story. And when he shares his story, he shares it completely. He wants folks to know just how far it is that he went down. So that at the end of the day, they know, like he knew, salvation belongs to God. Don't share your story in such a way where people praise you. Share your story in such a way where people praise God. There's virtue in sharing just how far down that you've gone. Because it only helps folks praise a God that could bring you up that far. And it reminds them that nobody's hit a spot so low that God can't come down and scoop them up and save them. Share your story consistently. Look for every opportunity that you can, not to talk about you, but to celebrate the great things that God has done. And one of the best ways to do this is just to be mindful of triggers, things that people say where you can just ease on in God into the conversation. This past week, um, a political party had uh, documents leaked. And one thing that they saw was they had this one leak, um, and it was instructions on how to kind of skirt the law, in a sense, and solicit more money than you're allowed to. And they just go line by line. If they say this, well, you can't really ask them for all that, but say these words. And there were all of these triggers, and they were so intent on, we want to train people So that they can pick up where in conversations they can insert this thing to get us what's most important. And that's the money that we need to win. How much more those of us that have experienced the grace and the kindness of God being strategic and trying to find ways that we can talk about God. I guarantee you, you know, people that are complaining. I guarantee you, you know, people who are in despair because of things that are so hard. Could it be that maybe they're frustrated because they find themselves putting their hope in vain idols? They're never going to find hope that way. Every time we hear a complaint or a frustration, that's a prime chance not to talk about us but to talk about a great God who's willing to meet people who offer very weak prayers and direct their complaints and frustrations to him. And if that takes place, I guarantee you, you'll start to see the people in your world with less frustration and more compassion. Why? Because we have a father who's so compassionate to us. Let's not be silent in the good news that we share. And for those of us that have met Jesus because we were driven to rock bottom, your story is a great place to start. Let's pray. Father God, again, we come to you and we are honored that you chose to save us. We're honored that you were so attentive to such weak prayers, Father. Um, I pray that we would never forget how gracious you are. I pray that that would inform us and the way that we live. Uh, Father, bless us as we go out in uh, the park today to rejoice and celebrate um, the fathers here in our context. But I pray that above all else, all of us would celebrate you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.